because there is this perception of, well, look what one person can do. How do we get somebody to speak up? It, it only took one. It didn't only take one. It took the Indie Star team. It took a detective who actually listened to me and believed what I was saying and pursued the investigation in record time. We had a sentence for Larry before most victims have charges. That's how fast Andrea moved. And it was just me. She had no idea what this case was going to become. She just did it because it was right. And her decision to do what was right literally changed the world. Hello, dear friends and damn givers. Welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. I'm your host, Nick LaPara. And on this show, I, along with my incredible guests, explore what it looks like to live a meaningful life. Each one of my guests wants to leave the planet much better than they found it. Let's give a damn family. Thank you for showing up. I'm so, so glad you're here. My guest today is a friend and one of my true, true, true heroes, Rachel Denhollander. Rachel was thrust onto the international stage four years ago as the first survivor to speak out against Larry Nassar's horrific sexual abuse and to pursue criminal charges against him. As a result of her bold and very public stand, more than 300 women, including Olympic medalists, came forward to talk about the abuse they had experienced as well. Nasser is now behind bars for the rest of his life. Thank God. Rachel was named one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in the World and one of Glamour Magazine's Women of the Year. She has also received the Inspiration of the Year Award from Sports Illustrated and was a joint recipient of ESPN's Arthur Ashe Courage Award, and those are just a few of the awards and the ways she has been recognized over the last few years. She has appeared on CNN, ABC, CBS, Fox, PBS, BBC, NPR, and so many other media outlets over the past few years talking about her story and her incredible work. And last but not least, she is the author of two incredible books, What is a Girl Worth?, and her second book aimed at helping little girls called How Much is a Little Girl Worth? I've only covered a little bit of who she is and what she has done, but I'll stop because that's what the conversation is for, right? Before we begin, a quick reminder that you can, anytime and for any reason, email me at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I love hearing from you. I'd love to hear from you. So keep that in mind. And now let's get right into my conversation with the incredible damn giver and amazing human, Rachel Denhollander. Let's go. I am super honored to have Rachel Denhollander on the Let's Give a Damn podcast today. This has been a long time coming. Welcome, Rachel. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. I am, uh, I've interviewed a lot of people. Uh, some very famous people. And I have to say that I'm pretty, I'm not nervous because like we know each other, we're friends, but I am like, there's a like a gravitas about this conversation because I think you're you're a friend, but you're also one of my heroes. And I don't just say that lightly. I have very few heroes, but uh, you're a hero of mine and you're a hero to so many people that are listening right now. So this is kind of a, an intense podcast conversation for me. So um, I'll try to I'll try to not fanboy out too much. Um, we have so many incredible things to talk about, hard stuff, hopeful stuff, and everything in between. Um, let's begin by how are you doing right now? Like, let's forget work. Let's forget your story and all that for a second. How are you doing right now? Um, you're you live in Louisville, you have uh, uh, family, you have kids, you have a husband, and you've been home probably more intensely 
intentionally and intensely than most people during this pandemic because of some certain dynamics in your family and the kids and health. So how are you doing right now? You know, I think with like with everyone, it's a really mixed bag. Um, I'll be honest, it's been really great to be able to be home. You know, the three years involving the court case were really hard, really, really hard on the family. Um, and so while I would have never chosen uh, a respite this way, there is a, there is a sense in which um, being forced to take a sabbatical from travel has really been a good thing. Um, you know, my kids are definitely feeling the unrest and the anxiety like everyone else is. Um, but I also think that gives a lot of really great room for conversations and talking about how we handle anxiety, um, you know, and what we do when we're walking through hard times. Um, that being said, I, I feel like we're really blessed, um, you know, to be able to be home together and to be well set up to do this. Yeah, I understand that. I, uh, I was a little hesitant going into this, um, because I've, tra as long as my kids have been alive and as long as I've been married, I've traveled quite a bit for work. And so they yeah. grew up seeing me like take off, right? Similar to your schedule, probably like, I mean, several times a month, sometimes a couple times a week I was gone. A lot of our relationship was over FaceTime and phone calls and texts and sending pictures back and forth. And then I would come home and try to be very intentional, but then I was off to the next thing again. Right. And I was a little nervous because my my amazing wife is way better. She like runs the home. That is her kingdom. She's so much better at it than I am. That's and awesome. whenever I come back from trips, I'd always have to check in like, hey, how are things going? What's new? Like, what is Belle doing that's differently now? Like, so that I can like work with it so I don't get frustrated. And then it was like, okay, March happened and boom, we're home indefinitely. Yeah. Hope we, At the time, we naively thought it was going to be a few weeks. And here we are seven, eight months later. But I... I have really enjoyed this time. Like at, at first I was very nervous and now I've just seen so, now there are some really hard days, as you pointed out, like walking through anxiety and just different things. I mean, our kids have been, my wife walked up to me today and she like, she actually physically shook me and said the kids have been, they've been in virtual school for 18 weeks. Oh, um, and like, it just feels, uh, yeah, just some super intense things happening right now, you know? And, um, so, but I understand, and I agree with you that this has been a, a blessing. Again, I wish there wasn't a pandemic attached to this right, right. and that we could have figured out how to make these decisions on our own to stay home more, but, and I, and things will change after, I don't know about for you, but I've already decided, like, I love traveling. I love seeing new places. I, I mean, I thrive on meeting new people in new places. It's one of my favorite things to do in the world, but I need to stay home more. I need to be home more and be more intentional about when I go out to travel because this has just been fun. And my kids multiple times a day come out to my office and knock on my door and we talk and we, you know, my son has this like weird thing he does now where he comes out on his break from school and he comes and gets my lunch plate and silverware. And he like says, I love you, Papa. And he grabs my stuff and takes it in. It's like this weird thing. I never asked him to do. He just started doing it. That's so there's like these interesting things that are happening now that wouldn't have happened had we not uh, started this forced, as you put it, respite that uh, we- Those bonds are special. Yeah, we need it. We need it for sure. Are you finding time to uh, take care of yourself and just like be alone or or is that not sort of happen and you're finding different ways to, to uh, stay mentally and physically healthy? Yeah, you know, that, that kind of varies. Um, I mean, I'm sure you're aware a lot of survivors are just really struggling during the pandemic. Mental health care and therapy have been disrupted. Um, the legal services and legal process has really been halted. Um, and so I haven't really found that there's a break 
in any of those things. If anything, um, the ante is really upped to be honest. Sure. Um, but I did take up rock climbing. I've started doing indoor rock climbing, which is a sport I always wanted to pursue. So I suck at it right now, but I'm loving it. And that's been a really good self-care. Um, my sister just had a baby. So I go out with, I go out with her and her baby and, and I get to cuddle a baby and I get to rock climb, which is basically a major win in my book. That's huge. That's yeah. huge. Rock climbing is uh, fun and I've always wanted to do it more and I never find the time to do it. Maybe someday it looks like soup and it's a lot. It's really good exercise. Cause it's yeah. very, I mean, it's, it's harder than it looks. You're like, Oh, you're just climbing up a freaking wall. And it's like, no, it's really, it's really intense. And yeah. it, it really, I mean, uh, like the grip, that's the one thing I didn't count on was like, Oh, strength wise, I could do it. But like, you got to have strength in these hands. Like you've got to be able to grip it super well, or you're not going to get very far up the wall. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. I love the combination of mental and physical that the sport requires. That actually reminds me a lot of gymnastics in that way. So sure, that's been a super fun thing to kind of add to the schedule. So when you were younger, uh, you got into gym, gym, gymnastics. Um, at what age did that, uh, first of all, where were you growing up? Where did you grow up and why did you get into gymnastics in the first place? So I grew up in a little town called Kalamazoo, Michigan. Uh, and it's, it was a really great place to grow up. Kind of had that small town feel with a lot of the bigger town resources attached to it. Um, but it's I didn't a college town, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's a college town, Western Michigan university is there. And so it was a small private college. Um, but I didn't start gymnastics till I was almost 12. Uh, so I was never going to be anything great. I just loved the sport. Um, partly because I wasn't capable of doing anything that involved balls or pucks or baseball bats. There's just not, not my thing. Um, but I loved gymnastics. I loved the difficulty of it. I loved the mental acuity that it required. I loved the physical uh, aspect of it. And I loved the way you could take something that was really difficult and make it look beautiful. Just that combination of grace and strength. Um, so it was a fantastic sport for me. And I was really privileged to be in a very healthy gym. And I didn't know at the time how unusual that was. Um, but my experience in the gym with my coaches and my teammates was incredibly positive and something that I really treasure to this day. So you started at 12. Was that uh, because that's when you got interested in it? Or what was the reason that you waited to 12? Because I just know, you know, watching the doc, which we'll talk about a little bit, Athlete A, and just hearing, you know, about more gymnasts, like they start when they're like two or three and it's super crazy intense, right? But you didn't start till 12. Was that because you knew you weren't going to, become uh kind of this big you know famous well-known gymnast or was it uh yeah what, what were the circumstances around that honestly it was cost gymnastics mm. is not a cheap sport uh, and when I was 11 and a half I started babysitting and so it got to the point where I said look I'll help pay for my gym fees um and you know, we we had grown up in a family where we were used to taking responsibility for those types of things we helped work to pay for our piano lessons um, and my parents sacrificed a great deal to make those opportunities available to us uh, and so we were able to find a gym uh, where uh, part of the time my family and I would actually clean the mats and we'd clean the gym and we'd work to pay for those gym fees and then I babysat and I nannied and I did other jobs on the side to also be able to contribute. So really that's why it took so long. I just couldn't pay for it ahead of time. Um, but I'm really grateful for that in some ways. Um, cause I wasn't going to be anything good learning to, to work for something that I loved and to value that was just a huge life lesson. And to be able to balance work and school and gymnastics and to find joy in those things and strike a healthy balance between them, um, was really, really helpful for me growing up. What was your home like? home life like? I mean, did you have other siblings? Uh, I know you said you babysat. I don't know if that was siblings or, or other kids or whatever. Um, my parents would never pay me to babysit kids. So it's probably other kids. Uh, but yeah, what was, what was home life like? It was awesome. 
it really was. I had a younger brother, we're two and a half years apart, and then a younger sister who's uh, four years younger than I am, and then my mom and dad, of course. Um, and we just lived in a little thousand square foot home, um, but it was a really joyful home. We were homeschooled growing up, uh, but my parents were really careful to make sure that that didn't mean we were sheltered from the realities of the world, but rather had opportunities to really pursue ministry and to understand what was going on in our communities. So I grew up, you know, going to nursing homes to play board games with the residents and working with gospel missions and, um, you know, doing odd jobs. We had a paper route that we did so we could earn money to support, uh, to feed children over in Haiti. There are a couple uh, kids that we sponsored over there and my siblings and I sponsored um, some of these, these kids ourselves with the, the money that we earned from our paper route. Um, and so I'm really grateful for my parents' approach to that. They really had a multi-generational approach to homeschooling that didn't pull us back, but really pushed us forward. That's beautiful. I, I, I too can remember, you know, I, when people ask, when did you start giving a damn? When did you start, uh, you know, really caring about others and figuring out who you were in your own skin, how you were going to, you know, impact the world? Um, I always point back to this time when I was 13, 14 with a woman named Susie Wolpert that lived near us in Guatemala City, where I grew up. But really, when you, it, it goes, that was the one that changed me as a, as a young man. That's the one I really remember. But there were seeds planted, right? I don't know that I would have been super prepared if my parents hadn't done so many similar things to what you just yeah. described. In fact, you talked about the nursing home. We, you know, growing up, I remember being six, seven, eight years old, going to different nursing homes and just spending time with yeah. these, these, and, and that really, that really shaped me, that, that. It's probably one of the reasons why I never looked uh, down on people that had any sort of disabilities. And I was always comfortable in my skin around them. There was never any awkwardness there. Well, because I grew up on their laps. I mean, literally, yep. I grew up, I mean, I grew up with them peeing on me and throwing up and like throwing food at me and, you know, talking with them and learning, trying to decipher what they were saying, what they were trying to communicate with me. Um, I grew up with all that. Like, I, I, I understood that environment very well. Um, and so, and it was a, to, to be clear, not all nursing homes are like that, but my, the nursing home that we were part of was with people that were older and, and, and yeah. disabled. And so, but that, that uh, uh, planted seeds in me that I think began to, I guess, flourish when I was 13 and 14 and was on my own able to begin figuring out how I wanted to impact the world. Um, I love that you got to experience that as well in, in your home. Um, when, so 12 years old, you start gymnastics. As you, as people get into the story, um, if people Google your name, they're going to find out really quickly what you're most well known for, and that is uh, leading not an gymnastics. army. Was that not not gymnastics? No, 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 no. I mean, not like yeah, very unlike uh, some of the some of the the girls that you influenced that that then began to speak out that did go on or at the time were very very well known for. Allie Raceman and Simone Biles and many other women that have done very well in the gymnastics world. Um, that, that's not what you're known for, but you did you did uh, speak up um, at a time when I'm sure it was very hard to do. And we'll get we'll get more into kind of the context and what was going on in your life at that time. But take 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 us on the journey between 12 years old, you start gym, gymnastics, and the time when you. Uh, started to get abused by Dr. Larry Nasser. Um, he's not a doctor anymore, Larry Nasser. Um, what was that journey like? I mean, how many years was that? And, and, and what sort of evolved, what sort of took place that led to that beginning to happen? 
Yeah. So I was very tall when I started gymnastics. I was already five, six almost by the time I started. Uh, I was not built for the sport at all. Uh, and I also progressed really rapidly. Uh, and so my body really didn't have time to adjust to the sport. Um, so about two years into it, I started experiencing a lot of distress related injuries, a lot of severe pain in my wrists, a lot of severe pain in my lower back, waking up with pinched nerves, not able to walk, that kind of thing. Um, I think part of the reason my mom wanted me to get medical care is because I couldn't wash dishes anymore because my wrists were so sore. She's yeah, like, yeah. If she can't do chores. She needs to get help. Yeah, exactly. Right. Now my parents were great about getting medical care. Um, but that was the running joke in our family. You need to be able to wash dishes. We're taking you to the doctor. Um, so we went to a couple sports medicine clinics in the area. And honestly, most sports meds docs don't just know, they don't know what to do with gymnasts. It's, it is such a isolated sport. It's such a specialized sport. It's so different um, than so many other sports that you know most sports medicine doctors are involved with. Um, they really don't understand the physics of it. And so when you know, these doctors did some diagnostics and really couldn't find anything wrong, came to the conclusion that my wrists were inflamed. Thanks. Um, you know, and then their, their prescription for it was, why don't you just take some time off? Like how much time off do you think? Well, let's start with two months. Well, two months in the world of gymnastics is your entire competitive season. You know, that's it. Sure. Um, but we went ahead and did it. Um, again, I was really fortunate to be in a gym that prioritized health and healing from injuries. And so my coach didn't bat an eye, um, you know, and I had parents that were, uh, that prioritized my health and my value, uh, you know, over athleticism, which is good. Um, you know, and so we did, we took the two months off. I did some ballet training, figured me out, maybe that'll be a crossover a little bit, but by the end of two months, it wasn't really any better. Um, and so I went, I returned to the sport and did what I could do, but we just weren't finding relief. Um, from anyone. And I had some other injuries in there. Um, I, you know, rolled an ankle and went, went to the orthopedist and they took x-rays and they said, Oh, there's nothing wrong. You know, you just sprained it. Um, we just hadn't gotten any help from these doctors. Uh, and so at one point there was a mom in our gym, uh, who was the mother of the highest level gymnast in our gym. She said, Hey, have you, have you heard about this Dr. Larry Nasser? And of course everybody knew who Larry was because he was the doctor for the USA gymnastics team. You know, he ran the medical care for our elite programs. If you see that iconic vault in 1996 where Carrie Strug, you know, falls and hurts her ankle and she's carried off the mat, the man reaching up to her saying, I got her, I got her, I got her. That's Larry. So everybody knew who Larry was by 2000. Um, but I had no idea that we had access to that kind of medical mm. care. But as it turned out, Larry was a doctor from Michigan State University. Um, and he actually worked for USAG under his Michigan State contract. He was, and he did the medical coordinating for some of the biggest gyms in Michigan for a local high school, but he also saw patients out of his MSU office. And so, you know, my mom and I talked about it and there were a couple other physical therapists we had talked about seeing locally just to see if we could get some help. But we decided to try Larry because we figured he's got the specialty in gymnastics. And hey, if USA Gymnastics trusts him with their athletes, Michigan State University is trusting him with their athletes. He's the best of the best. And the, you know, the, the ability for a no name level five gymnast to go to the doctor who treats the Olympians, that felt like an incredible privilege. Mm. Um, and so I was around 15, just, it was just after my 15th birthday and we were able to get an appointment scheduled in like a month, which is again, just, you know, an unheard of time frame to get into a specialist like that, but we were able to get in really quickly. Um, so we drove up to Michigan state and, you know, you walk in Larry's office and there are all the pictures of the MSU gymnasts and pictures and postcards from the Olympians. And they're all signed and thanking Larry for his medical care. And, you know, all of that's just displayed all over. Um, and so we go, you know, we go in the office and he comes in and he's just this kind of fatherly, a little bit nerdy, really outgoing personality. Um, you know, and he starts 
checking out my wrists and my back. And he's immediately pinpointing things that doctors haven't pinpointed. Hey, your shoulders are too tense. They don't, they don't flex where they need to flex. That's putting additional pressure on your wrist. You've got two vertebrae that don't bend. We need to get x-rays. We need to get just doing everything that everybody else should have done. Right now, not everybody had this experience with him. We now know that there were a lot of girls he intentionally misdiagnosed to keep them in medical care. In my case, he, he did everything right from the beginning. Um, you know, he got the diagnostics he needed to get. He identified all kinds of problems that were legitimate that nobody else had done. He got me into physical therapy right away. He made himself available uh, and really made us feel like I'm going to take care of you. Like I was a priority. Uh, and that was just something we hadn't gotten from anybody else. Uh, and then kind of later on in the appointment, he said, I, well, I want to do some sports massage. To, and I knew that that was a legitimate technique. I had a lot of friends who are physical therapists. I had had muscle manipulation done before. Um, and so like, you know, that's, yeah, that's fine. Um, but while he began to do the massage, that's when he began to abuse me. And at the time I genuinely thought it was legitimate medical care, um, because I knew that internal pelvic floor treatment could be legitimate medical care. And my thought process was, this is clearly something he does often, you know, his movements were very smooth. They were very rehearsed. He knew exactly what he was doing. He did it right there with my mom in the room. This is clearly something he does often. He's been a doctor for a long time and he's seen hundreds of athletes. There's no way somebody hasn't described what Larry's doing. If somebody described what Larry's doing and there was a question about it, he wouldn't be in here treating me. Right. So this must be this pelvic floor therapy that I've heard about. That's what this must be. And what we now know is I was right on those first two points. He was doing it hundreds of times a week to pretty much everybody who walked in his door. And people had described it a lot. But I was wrong in assuming that the authority figures who heard those descriptions would do the right thing. Um, but for the next really about a year, Larry continued to abuse me and the abuse would escalate and kind of wax and wane. But my mom was always in the room. He would position himself so that she couldn't see what his hands were doing. But I didn't know that. Um, and that's I now know that's a really common tactic abusers use. Sexual abuse often actually happens out in the open in circumstances where people think that's not possible. And the abuser does that on purpose for a couple of reasons. Sure. They do it that way because they know the victim is going to be in shock and second guessing what they're experiencing. It can't be abuse. Abuse doesn't look like this. And they also know that they've created a context where if the victim speaks up, it's going to seem impossible for the abuse to have happened that way. Um, and they rely oftentimes on the victim's response of freezing or being in shock. Because, of course, if you're being abused and your mom's sitting three feet away, you would say something, right? So it must not have actually happened. But I didn't realize back then that abusers intentionally create these dynamics to abuse. And of course, my mom couldn't see what he was doing. So she didn't know she needed to ask me questions. She was, she was the parent who was constantly asking questions. And Larry would tell her exactly what he was doing, minus a few details. And I didn't know I needed to tell her. And she didn't know she needed to ask. Super intense. Super intense that he did it on the first time, right? Am I correct? According yeah. to your timeline, that like the very yeah. first time he saw you, he began to abuse you. Looking back, you know, this wall that you said where he had all the photos and the thank yous and everything, obviously girls in there were mm -hmm. abused, right? So these are girls oh, yeah. that had that he had abused. Do you think that um in as you saw that? that probably made you trust him even more, right? Again, like a wall full of happy patients, right? It's kind of like seeing a, you know, if you go into a doctor's office, you see four degrees on the wall, you're like, oh, cool. This this doctor knows what they're doing, right? It's yeah. It kind of, it probably even lets your guard down even more. This wasn't some, you know, you talked about this, uh, the couple things that were happening when he started to abuse you, the kind of the shock and the, it's out of place, right? Like 
this this shouldn't be happening here, especially with mom three feet away. It's not like there was, you know, low lighting and candles and like a warning, like, hey, I'm going to abuse you. Like, that's what you're here for. Um, What a wild thing. And and obviously the the him going in there and now we know this looking back on the story, but him going in there, uh, you know, on the first on the first visit to abuse you he was so comfortable in his skin. This is what, this is what Larry Nassar does. He abuses girls under the guise of, uh, taking care of them. Mm -hmm. And he knew he wasn't going to be caught. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I watched, so, so last night everybody needs to, I mean, it's a hard, I kind of describe it as hard and hopeful, which is a lot of these conversations like this, right? Um, athlete a on Netflix, um, kind of a wild documentary. I thinking about our conversation today, I stayed up way too late watching it last night. And I was, I was all, I mean, I was feeling all sorts of things. I was sick to my stomach. I cried a few times. I was, it was just so intense. Like it was so riveting and just so like, how the hell is this happening? Like this, this could not have happened. And I remember the, the one scene where it's the, it's the security camera of him in the room with, um, I forget her name now, but he was being questioned, right? Um, this is after you went to Michigan state university and it, it was right there and he got called in. Right. And, um, one of the things he said, again, I know enough about what's happening, uh, not just with him, but in this world now over the last year, interacting with several survivors that, um, you know, he says to her, wait, if this was, cause he's talking about you, he's referencing you. Like this was so long ago. Like, why didn't she speak up? Like, why didn't she, why didn't she? Every rape myth in that police interview. What's that? He spouts every rape myth in that police interview. Why didn't okay, you? Okay, so yeah, so go 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 into those because there's a, a lot of those. I mean, in this Me Too movement, right? Like there are so many. I, I I interact with so well. Actually, I try not to interact with them because it feels like just a lost cause to even get into those conversations on the internet of all places. But a lot of that is like, why why didn't you? Okay, I want to believe you, but why didn't you speak up? Like if 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 this if this doctor right in front of my mom had his fingers inside of me, like I should have, I, she should have spoken up. I like, so I, I question the validity of the claim, like go into some of those, those uh, myths, because I think it's important for people to hear. Cause we're going to hear more stories. Like a lot more is coming out, right? We've got yeah. not just in the Christian world, like all over the place, or I should say not just uh, outside of the church, but inside of the church as well. We're seeing these cases come up more and more. And there's so many people that just haven't been caught yet. Like it's happening way more than we think. They just oh, yeah. haven't been caught yet. So as these stories come out, go into some of these myths and some of these talking points that they've that they come up with that are just like flat out not true. Yeah. So the two that you see, Larry, predominantly use in that investigation, and Andrea, Detective Mumford, does a phenomenal job That's right, Andrea. Yep. right in that interview, which I thought was brilliant on her part. Um, but the two he brings up the most are why didn't she say something at the time? And why did, why did it take her this long to come forward? And those are some of the top two uh, responses that you get. So why, you know, why didn't she say something at the time? There are a lot of reasons victims don't say something at the time. First, we need to understand that about half of victims actually freeze. And I did experience this at the mo- at the point that I almost, that I realized what Larry was doing was abuse or realized at least part of what he was doing was abuse. I completely froze. I couldn't speak. I couldn't move. I couldn't cry out. And perpetrators know that victims have that freeze response. They rely on victims having that freeze response. Victims are often also very confused and they're just second guessing what they're experiencing. I know this person, this person's trustworthy. This is who this person is supposed to be. And I can't reconcile what he's doing with the person he's supposed to be. This can't be happening. It can't be real. The problem must be me. I must be wrong. 
Um, you know, and you see that you see that quite a lot where the victim actually puts the blame on themselves. I must have a dirty mind. I must be reading into this. You know, why would I think that so and so would do something like this? So the victim puts the blame on themselves and questions their own judgment and perceptions. And so they don't speak up. There's also an incredible level of shame attached mm. to it. You don't want to draw more attention to something that is so shame-filled, especially when you're not entirely sure what's going on. Um, you know, and and oftentimes in abuse contexts, the sense of normalcy is so warped because of the systems that the perpetrator has created that it's not uncommon, particularly for childhood victims, to not be able to identify abuse. Sometimes this is because it takes place in a medical context like it did with Larry. Sometimes this is because it takes place at an age before they have the sexual knowledge to realize what sexual abuse is. Uh, and so by the time by the time they start realizing what's going on or even being able to put words to what's going on, this has been normal. There's no way to explain that it isn't normal. They have no sense of normal and abnormal. Um, we had this situation uh, with my brother when he was, uh, he was little um, and he wasn't catching on to reading. He wasn't catching on to reading. Mom couldn't figure out why. And he was also constantly running into things, like just you know, mm. crashing into walls and stuff like that. Well, he drew a family portrait one day and he drew everybody's heads offset to the side. Wow. And my mom was like, what, you know, why did you do that? And he didn't know how to answer her because that's how he was seeing everything. He had a visual neurologic problem that was shifting everything six inches to the right. But he didn't know to tell my mom that because he didn't know that wasn't what everybody else experienced. And in the same way, you see that dynamic a lot with childhood sexual assault victims. They don't know to tell someone because they don't know what they're experiencing isn't normal. And that was definitely part of my story in terms of the medical context. I knew that pelvic floor therapy existed. I knew that it was a legitimate form of treatment. I knew that Larry was seeing girls every day and doing this. So clearly this is normal. I had no, I had no framework for it being abnormal. And many childhood sexual assault victims don't have that framework. In fact, we're really even reaching a point where a lot of adult victims don't have that framework, either because their sense of normalcy has been so shaped and warped by childhood trauma or because we are in a culture that is so steeped in pornography and violent sexuality that these women think these types of events are normal, that being raped is normal, that having forced oral sex is normal because it's what they've seen modeled for them. Um, and so when you shift that sense of what's normal, the victim doesn't even know they need to say anything. They don't know something's abnormal. And so the, all of that keeps them silent. And I think it's really critical to understand societally that when we have that immediate response of why didn't you say something or that's not possible, it couldn't have happened that way, we've actually done exactly what the perpetrator wanted us to do. The perpetrator is relying on us using those rape myths. They're creating scenarios where those rape myths are going to come out and we become part of the problem. We become part of the rape myth when we respond that way to survivors. And then you've got the dynamic of why does it take them so long to speak up? And a lot of those, you know, a lot of those reasons really mirror the reasons why they kept silent. It can take years for a victim to even recognize that what she's gone through isn't normal. For many of the women, most of the women uh, that Larry abused, they didn't know it wasn't medical treatment until I came forward. Right. Um, you know, there were some who had spoken up earlier, but most didn't know. Even though a lot of them had all the signs of sexual abuse, they did not know they'd been abused. In fact, there were many of them who were in therapy and the therapists were trying to find out where these root issues were coming from wow. because they had all the signs of trauma, but they didn't know the source of it. Um, and so, you, you know, a victim often doesn't speak up because their sense of normalcy is so warped that they don't know they've been abused. It takes years and years of coming out of that and reshaping your sense of normalcy to know that what you've experienced isn't okay. You also have a massive shame dynamic 
attached to it. The last thing you want to do is draw attention to the most shameful things in your life and putting words to it makes it real. And then most victims are also really keenly aware of how survivors are treated in society. You know, and I think it's just, it's always ironic to me that when a victim speaks up and makes a delayed disclosure of abuse, the immediate response is she's in it for the money. She's in it for attention. She wants to ruin a good man. Why the hell did she wait so long to speak up? Yep. Because of everything you're doing right now. Yep. You waited that long to speak up because of everything you're doing right now. You are literally proving the point by, by attacking her this way or attacking him this way. Um, and so you have all of those factors really coalescing. Add to it that our legal system is really, really broken. You know, the, the frank reality is that out of every 300 rapes reported to the police, only five or six are going to result in criminal charges. About six result in charges, about five result in conviction and jail time. It takes an average of two to five years to actually get that process done. And according to the Federal Department of Justice statistics, the average jail sentence for a sexual abuser, including childhood sexual abuse, is less than the average jail sentence for someone who possesses a controlled substance. You can rape a child and do less jail time than if you have marijuana on your person. So why would a victim go through the process of reporting and be so re-traumatized for the likelihood that she's never going to see justice and it really delays her healing for five years? Yeah, and most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, the responses that victims receive, even when they disclose to the police, are incredibly damaging. Um, it is not law and order SVU. It doesn't look like it does on TV. Yeah, it is, even in my case alone, what we now know is that there were five different agencies involved with reports to Larry. Only one agency did the right thing. Only one detective did the right thing. Everybody else either intentionally covered up or just didn't do a good investigation. So doing it right was the exception, not the norm. And victims are aware of all of these dynamics. You feel hopeless with fighting a system like this. Those uh, statistics you just gave and it, regarding, uh, you know, once a survivor speaks up and tells the powers that be hoping that something happens, those those are, you said, out of 300 rape cases, only five or six will ever see justice and the justice isn't even, you know, it's, I have I have weed on my desk right now that helps me calm down because of my ADHD. Like that's wild that this right here could land me more time than if I raped a child. Like that is that is unconscionable. Yeah. Like is the, the, those statistics is that unique to the U.S. and are there other countries that are doing it better or is that just across the board? We as a globe, as a world, have messed up on this. What is, it is, is that across the globe? And honestly, the U.S. is broken as a system is. The U.S. is one of the best systems in the world. And that's a scary thing to say because mm -hmm. our system's pretty bad. So I imagine for many of these girls, and, and maybe for you, I don't want to presume, but like for many of these girls, this is their first sexual encounter. And mm -hmm. it's not a good one. Uh, in fact, it's the whatever the opposite of good is. It's horrible. It's terrible. And it's not the way that it was intended to be, a, you know, a first sexual encounter. Um, what does that do? What did that, having that done so early, uh, to you, like, what has it done to you? And what, as you've obviously talked to so many survivors, like, what does that do for survivors moving forward in terms of, uh, yeah, just sexuality and, and then wanting to, I mean, pulling back from it, being very guarded from then on out or what sort of happens? I guess it's, you know, it's very subjective, obviously, but 
for you and for others that you've engaged with, what does that look like going forward? It's got to be confusing and tragic. And yeah, there's no path forward from that because you've already been, you've been hurt uh, during your first or second or third sexual encounter, like really early on. Like, what does that look like? Yeah. So it really spans a range of spectrums and it can, you know, obviously how early the abuse started, how long the abuse was, was ongoing, all of those things affect the impact. Um, but, you know, especially as a child and my first experience with sexual abuse actually was about age seven mm. in my local church. Mm. Um, and so when you, when you have an experience that early, especially for children who are living in a situation where it's ongoing sexual abuse, the trauma and the damage from that is so, so extensive. And you can see a wide range of fallout from this. Um, it is not uncommon for victims to become um, somewhat very sexually aggressive, actually, themselves, mm. because they've gotten to the point where they're, they've never been allowed to control their own sexuality. And so you will see often these spiraling patterns of really unhealthy sexual behavior and dangerous sexual behavior in sexual assault survivors. Um, and a pattern of significant sexual aggression. Uh, and that's that's a really common fallout uh, from sexual abuse. And what's really going on there is a couple of things. There's the victim feeling like this is all I'm worth. You know, this is, mm. this is the only thing I have to contribute. This is where my value is. This is the only way that people find me enjoyable or pleasing. You have a dynamic of I'm not worth anything anymore because I've just been used. You also have a dynamic of I want to be back in control. And the victim feels like if I can just initiate the sexual encounter, it doesn't matter how unhealthy it is because now I'm the one in control. I'm the one using my sexuality. I'm the one using my power. Um, yeah. And oftentimes we look at that dynamic in particular and we'll say, oh, well, you know, she sleeps with everybody. She must've slept with that guy too. In reality, what we're often looking at is a woman that's been so broken and so damaged from yeah. such a young age that she's trying everything in her power to regain her value and to wield her sexuality on her terms rather than having it wielded against her. So that's one dynamic that you often see weirdly intermixed with that. You do often see a withdrawal from sexual feeling mm -hmm. um, and from wanting to express your sexuality. You know, this can take any, you know, forms of uh, not wanting to be touched or wearing really baggy clothes, not wanting to look attractive. You certainly see that dynamic too. It's not uncommon to see both of those together. Um, you know, and I, I think that's where our understanding of trauma really needs to grow uh, because to someone who hasn't experienced that, it seems counterintuitive, uh, but it's really not. The victim wants to be able to assert sexual aggression on her terms. She doesn't want to be seen as attractive and have anyone assert sexuality against her. And so you see those two things working in tandem. It's not uncommon uh, for victims to completely divorce the sexual act from emotional intimacy because they had to disassociate during their abuse to survive. So they have grown up with a model of sexuality and their bodies wired for sexuality in a way that only allows them to look at it as a physical act and they don't ever experience intimacy the way it's designed to be experienced. Their bodies and their responses to sexuality and their views on sexuality have to be completely rewired um, and kind of along with that, it's not uncommon to see victims, uh, survivors going forward who uh, engage in a lot of rape fantasy or uh, unhealthy sexual behaviors um, or who can't experience any kind of sexual contact or pleasure without pain and fear being associated with sure. it. And that seems very, again, that seems very counterintuitive to somebody who hasn't been in that world. But what you're often seeing there is that especially for children who are engaged in, who have been, had sexual abuse perpetrated against them for a long time period or from a very early age, 
their body learned to only respond and experience sexual touch in the context of pain and fear, even though that's horrible and evil and they know it's horrible and evil, their body only responds that way. It's not their fault. It's not because of something they want or something they did wrong. It's how their body was trained to respond. It's how those neurologic pathways formed. And that's all got to be undone and new neurologic pathways formed before the victim can experience any form of healthy sexuality. And so many times we look at those dynamics in particular, and we use that as evidence that, oh, this, you know, this person just sleeps with everyone, um, you know, and, and to actually discount the stories of abuse sure. and the allegations of abuse that victims are bringing forward. In reality, what you're really looking at is the fallout from extreme trauma. You know, we are, we, in, here in the United States, we have 4% of the world's population, 25% of the world's uh, prisoners. We, we, we incarcerate, I, I believe, and, and I'm not alone in this, we incarcerate so many people mm-hmm. that should not be incarcerated, especially under the sentences we give them, we haven't done the, all, all we're trying to do is punish them for the crime they've committed. Right. Instead of saying, you know, uh, kind of the Brian Stevenson, EJI, like, you know, restorative justice, like what's going on here? Like there's this, this doesn't make sense. So let's dig into the story and where have you been hurt and how have you been hurt and how along the way have you not been helped as a result of being hurt, right? Um, these, you, you talked about sometimes these people, uh, th- these survivors acting out, right? And committing crimes ultimately. Mm-hmm. Are, are they, do they commit, do sex abuse survivors commit sexual crimes or can it be a, a plethora of different crimes? Or does it usually result in uh, sexual crimes? You know, it actually really varies. There's kind of a myth that goes around that sexually abused kids are more likely to become sexual abusers. That's actually not backed by data. Hmm. That is based on some surveys that were done of inmates who were pedophiles and sexual abusers. But every time, in every context where they were asked the question to um, acknowledge or disclose childhood sexual abuse, there was a positive result for them disclosing it. So the the authenticity of those studies and, and the accuracy of those studies is really called into extreme question. In the studies where there wasn't any kind of benefit that the inmate could potentially receive from disclosing childhood abuse, they actually didn't find any distinction. But we do see, what you do see is that a significant amount of childhood sexual offenders, young teens or children who become sexual offenders, there is a much higher correlation Mm. there. So if someone is becoming a sexual offender at a young age, that is um, the statistical likelihood that they have been victimized is much, much higher in the child category specifically, not for adult offenders. Okay, let's back up a little bit here because I want, okay, so let's go back to when you're 15, what year are we in? 2001. 2001, okay. And this story uh, broke in 2016, 15? 16. 16, so 15 years. Let's go back 15 years. Um, What, don't, don't, you know, give me the whole 15 years there, but what was that 15, what happened in those 15 years that resulted 15 years later, what led up to you saying enough is enough. Now's the time to speak up. Yeah. So I think the first critical answer to that question is once I realized at least part of what he was doing, I was never unwilling to speak up. Yeah. And I I get asked that question all the time. What do we need to do to make it, to make victims want to speak up? Victims usually want to be able to speak up. 
the problem is that they've got nowhere to speak up to. Mm, sure. They've got nowhere safe to disclose. Um, but there was, so I started seeing Larry in 2000 and he abused me into late 2001. But on one of the last visits, uh, he did something that I knew was abuse. And that was when I froze. And at that moment, reality really started crashing in on me. And I realized this, this man in front of me is not who I think he is. And who is this person? Because this doesn't happen in a vacuum. You know, by that age, partly because of the abuse I had experienced before and, and just watching culture and society. And this was, you know, post-Boston Globe investigation where we had started to see just the level of institutional cover-up, all that stuff. Um, you know, I, I realized whatever, whoever he is, whatever he's doing, he's not doing it in a vacuum. I'm not the first. There's no way I'm the first and I'm not going to be the last. And so that shifted my narrative to he is doing this every day. People probably have spoken up. The fact that he's here in the exam room with me means whoever's speaking up is being systematically silenced and one voice is never going to be enough. Um, and at that point, I just really, I honestly didn't know what to do. There was so much shame attached to it that I didn't disclose the part that I knew was abuse to my parents. Um, and it really took about a year before I disclosed that. Um, but during that year, I was really starting just to try to figure out for myself how much of what he was doing was actually medical practice and how much of it was abuse. And I didn't like the answers that I was getting um, because I couldn't find anything that resembled the quote unquote medical procedures Larry was doing. Um, but at one point, my mom started to see some really some behavioral changes that indicated to her that something had to have happened that she wasn't aware of. And so she just directly asked me, she just bluntly asked if something had happened that she didn't know. And that gave me what I needed um, to be able to answer her question and disclose to her. If, if, you really want, if, if, if you don't want to share what those behavioral changes were, that's totally fine. But what were, what were some of the things that clued your mom into, okay, something's wrong here. I need to press further. So she specifically noticed that I grew really, really agitated if I had men standing behind me or in close mm. proximity, but especially standing behind me. And it was a very consistent pattern that she noticed developing um, with just really severe agitation. And so that was a warning sign to her. And so she talked to me about it. She says, hey, this is the pattern I'm seeing. And at first I kind of tried to push her off. Like, oh no, I was just, you know, I was, I was just hungry. I was just tired. I was just, you know, I was just in a crabby mood. And she's like, no, this is too much of a pattern. Just has something happened that I don't know about. And she just outright asked. Um, and fortunately, my parents had built a relationship with me to that point where I was never afraid they wouldn't believe me. I just didn't know how to put words to it. And so by her asking the question, that opened the door for me to finally put words to the part that I knew, you know, and then of course, you know, both of us started asking the question, is there more that we didn't realize? Um, you know, and figuring that out was honestly a process of several years, talking to medical experts, doing as much legal, legal and medical research as I could do. Um, and, and to be able to pinpoint how I would explain the differences of, you know, between Larry's procedures and legitimate medical procedures, being able to really narrow down exactly what he did, that took years and years and years to be, to be fully confident uh, that everything I experienced with him was sexual abuse. Um, but before we even got to that point, we did start having a conversation of what do, what do we do with this? We know you're not the first and we know you're not going to be the last. And he's seeing little girls every day. What do we do with this? And at that point, I talked to my mom and I said, look, there's, there's no way that somebody hasn't spoken up before. He's still out there treating, which means whoever's speaking up is being systematically silenced. One voice alone is never going to be enough. We have to have media pressure. I would have to be able to take the narrative out of his control. I would have to be able to reach other survivors and have a coalition of us coming forward. One voice alone is never going to be enough. I'm confident that's already been tried. It's not going to be enough. Sure. 
And so she and I actually talked about going down to a newsroom and just seeing if we could get them to pick up the story. Um, but reporting was so different back then and the legal hurdles to getting something like that done were so huge. And just on a practical level, I didn't know at 17 years old how to make something like that happen. Um, and so really what I was watching and waiting for for 15, 16 years was that crack, you know, just that, that crack in the wall, any sign that somebody would listen and somebody would believe. I mean, first of all, you know, props to your parents for, and no parents perfect, um, as a, as a failed parent, uh, many times I can say that, but props to them for creating an environment where, um, you, you could speak about those things, but as you pointed out, it's not enough. Like as we're, as I'm raising two girls and a young boy and top of mind are not just sexual abuse, but just like the world we live in. I'm not, Mm -hmm. I'm not naive to the kinds of things that could happen at school and the kinds of things that could happen right under our nose, right? Right under our noses. So it's not just enough to, as parents, to create an environment where our kids can talk to us about anything, but it's also about being like very keen on observing these changes in behavior. Like most parents would have just said, oh, she's just a teenager, blah, blah, blah. She's just growing up. That's why she doesn't, she's irritated, agitated, whatever. And in other words, like I can't just say, well, we've done all that we can to make this a very open, uh, you know, conversation sort of home. They can talk about anything. We don't get mad. We believe them. It's not just enough to do that. Some We have to be very open eyed and open hearted about like, okay, that's, that's weird. I've got to press in, but how do I press in to not make them climb up and shut down? Yeah. Um, you know, something very terrible could have happened. And, um, so props to them for, for creating that environment and to your mom who just pushed, you know, harder, uh, one side note, when you were abused at seven, did you disclose that then? When did you disclose that to your parents and, and, I'm not asking for particulars, but like what, what sort of happened there? Or is that like a, a past thing that you're just done with? No, I think it really is connected a lot to what happened with Larry, honestly. Um, so I was abused in a church that was non-denominational, but really had kind of, kind of had actually it was really weird dynamic. They had a cohort that really followed hardcore new J Adams counseling. And then they had a women's sexual abuse counseling ministry that mm. followed Christian psychologists. Um, so you can imagine the level of infighting that took place in that church uh, based on those two groups. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a there was a college student in the church who was targeting me and targeting one other little girl. And this sexual abuse counseling ministry being trained in sexual abuse dynamics and warning signs, they saw those warning signs and they came to my parents and said, I think we have a problem here. Um, and what, what we didn't know at the time was that this person had also been harassing uh, other college women. And he had been reported to the pastors for harassing, sexually harassing other college women and just being very over, overly familiar, making them very uncomfortable um, and hadn't done anything about it. So my parents, you know, they, my parents were kind of at the position where they felt like something's not right, but they were second guessing their own judgment. Um, and so they immediately took steps to protect me, but it was already too late. By that point, we'd had at least one instance of abuse that had already occurred. Um, and it took place right out in the open during a Bible study, you know, I, again, right where there were just tons of adults. And I didn't, I, I knew something was very wrong, but I froze and I couldn't say anything. And I also didn't know, I didn't know how to describe what I had experienced. And I wasn't about to try. I wasn't about to try to put words to what I had experienced. Um, you know, but again, it's, it's one of those contexts where it's impossible for abuse to have happened. Um, but as soon as my parents took steps to protect me, we got immediate pushback 
from others in the church um, where, you know, it was, it was that the same response a lot of victims face. You're making accusations without foundation. If this is how you're going to treat your kids, I'm not even going to come around your kids anymore. Um, you know, and so we, we were essentially isolated. And so by eight years old, I had, I was reeling from sexual abuse that I didn't understand. I, I had articulated, I was afraid of this guy by this point. I used to hide in the women's bathroom so he couldn't find me during church. Uh, but that wasn't enough for these, uh, for these other church members. So I was reeling from abuse that I didn't understand. And I was also reeling from losing uh, all of our close friends and everybody who had really defined the concept of church and family. You know, it was a a really small church. Everybody knew everybody. I was the, I was the one that always carried the babies around church at seven and eight years old. Um, And I did childcare and nursery. And so everybody knew everybody in that church. And we just lost all of that. Um, and the, the church had a long history of bearing sexual sin and sexual abuse, which we didn't fully know um, at the time. And it, it eventually split the church apart and they don't even exist anymore. Um, but when I was about 12, um, I took a biology class and I started having a lot of nightmares coming mm. back up. And so I finally, I finally disclosed to my mom uh, when I started to realize what I had experienced. Um, and at that point, I started asking more questions. You know, why, why did we have to leave the church? Why did these adults behave this way? And that's when I really began to put the pieces together. And the message that I internalized from that was, if you can't prove your abuse, don't speak up because it will cost you everything. And three years later, I walked into Larry's exam room and I questioned my own judgment when things didn't seem right. Is your, do you know if your abuser is still free? Do you know anything about him or... He was an exchange student, so he went back to his you home. Have no country. idea, yeah. Yep. No idea. I'm so sorry that happened to you so so young. Um, it's terrible. So, your lawyer, you yep. sometime in that those 15 years, you trained to become a lawyer. Like, what was the impetus for? Was it things you were going through? Was it you having more of a justice bent to your life now as you're thinking about these things and also knowing that like, man, if I speak up now, there's no way I'm going to be believed. The systems aren't set up for it. Was it that? Or what was the reason you pursued becoming a lawyer? Um, So my parents would tell you it's because I was really stubborn and argumentative. And that is partly true. Um, But I actually articulated a desire to become an attorney around 10 years old. Um, And it was, it was really just because of a natural bent towards justice. And I said, you know, if, if I don't, if I don't have kids of my own someday, I at least want to be able to do something to protect kids. I think I might want to become an attorney. And I was looking at that point at, you know, a lot of different child protection policies, not necessarily for sexual abuse, but just across a spectrum um, of of areas. And that was just a a desire that was really continually fueled. I looked, shifted for a little while and was looking more at public policy, but I can't stomach the politics enough. I did that for a few years and I I can't handle it. Um, So I shifted back towards law school. And I I really don't think it was because of Larry, um, but the skills that I learned in law school definitely gave me what I needed. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because you, um, one thing that was pointed out in the doc was that you, you came so prepared, right? Like when you finally, um, and I want to talk about what this, because you 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 pointed out earlier, you're waiting 15 years for this crack, right? This crack, this this moment for you to be able to speak up. And I want to talk about that in a second. But one thing that was pointed out was when Rachel came forward, like Rachel was prepared uh, for, for, because she, she spent all this time knowing what wouldn't happen if I came forward, you know, during those, if you came forward during those years and you became super prepared uh, when the time came to speak up, what was that crack you were alluding to? Like, what was the thing that happened that said, now's the time? 
So I was, so fast forward to 2016, I'm married, I'm living in Louisville. We have three kids. My uh, oldest son is five. And then I have daughters that are two and one, and they're both cutting teeth at the same time, two-year-olds cutting her two-year-old molars and the baby's cutting teeth. Um, she was really fussy. Um, Jacob was a seminary student and, and working full-time. Um, and I, I was wearing my baby on my back and the two-year-old was, I give, I would give her a big mason jar and she would play with her pacifiers and she would just fill up the jar with all her pacifiers. And she thought that was really comforting, um, when she was fussy. So she was playing with all her pacifiers and I was wearing the baby on my back and I needed to add something to my grocery list. And I usually kept my grocery list on a document on my computer and then I would email it to myself, um, so that I would have it when I went to the store and I opened up my computer um, and I had left Facebook up from the night before and trending in the sidebar was an article, how you, uh, out of balance, USA gymnastics turns a blind eye to sex abuse. And I clicked on that article and read the whole thing in its entirety. And it wasn't about Larry, but it was an undercover expose that, uh, the Indianapolis star had done on how USA gymnastics was systematically burying the reports of sexually abusive coaches, allowing these coaches to hop from gym to gym to gym and keep abusing oftentimes little girls. Um, and I read that article and my first thought was I was right. They have been covering up abuse. And really that wasn't a massive revelation. There had been literal books written on the level of sexual corruption and corporate corruption in USAG, but nobody had paid attention to it up until then. So I was right. And this is it because I could tell the journalism team understood the dynamics of abuse. They had been in the dark underbelly of USAG. If anybody was, and they, they had been able to put together the survivor stories and the facts and the education piece of helping their readers understand how this could happen. They had put that all together in a way that the story was actually trending. It was catching fire like nobody ever had before. And, you know, I, I worked in public policy. I worked in communication. The media cycle only comes around every now and then. Sure. Yeah. It's hitting USA Gymnastics right now. If Larry's name doesn't come out now, it's going to be years before USAG is in the news again because it's catching too much fire to have it keep going. Um, and so I immediately wrote to the journalism team and I said, hey, I, you know, I, I want to report something. I wasn't abused by a coach. I was abused by the U.S. Olympic team physician. I have my medical records. Here's what I've got. Here's what happened. And I'm willing to come forward as publicly as necessary if you can just get the truth out. And I sent it off to them. Um, and I got a quick form letter back. Thank you for your submission. You know, and I didn't hear anything for, I'll say it's close to two weeks. Um, but then I got an email back from one of the reporters. And he said, two other women have raised the same name that you raised. Uh, and I think we'd like to sit down with you. Um, and that at that point, uh, one of them was not in a position to be able to participate at all in the story. Um, she talked to the reporters and could lend some background, which was hugely helpful because it helped tie those pieces together. But she wasn't in a position to be able to stay in this, to you know, participate in the story. Um, and the other one was not in a position to be able to come forward with her identity. And I felt like that was just a really critical piece. You know, survivors had to see a face. They had to have somebody that they could identify with. You had to be able to see the physical and the emotional cues when you're talking about these things. And I also felt it was really critical, honestly, for Larry. I needed him to know that I was willing to meet him in the public sphere where he was most comfortable and that I wasn't going to back down. And the only way to do that was to come out with my full identity and all of the details of the abuse. Um, and so we, we sat down and I was very particular in, in what I chose to say and how I chose to say it really designed um, all of it with very specific goals in mind for reaching other survivors and requiring Larry to have to confront certain things publicly. Um, and it, it was effective. The reporters did an absolutely phenomenal job, but that was the first time in 16 years I had seen a crack and it shouldn't have taken that long. Yeah. God bless the Indy star for 
yeah. doing that hard work that then allowed you and, and consequently so many others to come forward. And, and again, you're known for being kind of this first voice that spoke up, was, was willing to go on camera and, and then the floodgates sort of opened, right? The dam broke mm -hmm. and g give me a picture, give us sort of a, a synopsis of the next few months between that point and the sort of widely circulated, very famous like court uh, testimony that you gave that I'm going to link to that in the show notes because it's, it's one of, and I'm, and I'm, again, I'm not, uh, I'm not saying this lightly, like maybe one of the most powerful, you know, monologue speeches I've ever heard in my life. Um, you were obviously someone that these other survivors were looking up to and looking to, to take leadership here. What did that between when you spoke up in that courtroom, when Larry received his sentences um, or his sentence, which, which, you know, came with multiple, you know, multiple uh, charges. And I think he was uh, multiple 60 year, you know, sentences and many other things that happened. Like what, what happened there? What was sort of the, 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 the course of events that led to that courtroom uh, scene? So I honestly think it's an absolutely fascinating story um, because it is a, it is a comparison and a contrast in good police work, good prosecutorial work, uh, contrasted with what had taken place for the first 16 years, uh, which is part of why I wrote my book, because I really wanted to be able to yeah. highlight what was going on behind the scenes that actually made this work. Because there is this perception of, well, look what one person can do. How do we get somebody to speak up? It, it only took one. It didn't only take one. Mm. It took the Indie Star team. It took a detective who actually listened to me and believed what I was saying and pursued the investigation in record time. We had a sentence for Larry before most victims have charges. Right. That's how fast Andrea moved. And it was just me. She had no idea what this case was going to become. She just did it because it was right. And her decision to do what was right literally changed the world. And then we had a prosecutor who came in and took those files and said, I'm going to fight for every one of them and then kept her word for the next 18 months. Um, and that actually is, a, is something we almost didn't have. The local county prosecutor was going to allow Larry to plead guilty to possession of child porn. When Andrea moved really quickly uh, to get search warrants for his house, they were able to search his garbage cans and found hard drives with thousands of images of child porn on them. Uh, and had she delayed even a few hours, they wouldn't have found those. Yeah, uh, they were in the, weren't they in the trash cans, like out on the curb? The trash. Yep, they were in the trash and the trash pickup was late. Uh, but if she hadn't gotten, if she hadn't pursued getting those warrants as fast as she could, the evidence would have been gone by that by that time. Um, but they found the child porn in his trash. But the local prosecutor, at, at this point, there were around 20 or 24 of us who had reported. I was still the only one speaking publicly, but there had been around 24 that had filed uh, police reports, including a victim who was abused in a non-medical context. And the local prosecutor wanted to keep the child porn in local jurisdiction, even though Michigan didn't have very good child porn laws at that point in time. It's something we've changed since then. Uh, but the, the penalties for possession of child porn were very, very lax in Michigan. And she wanted to keep them in Michigan rather than giving them to the federal authorities where we could get a much better prison sentence for the type of material Larry had on his computer. Um, and then she was going to allow Larry to plead guilty to the child porn charges in exchange for dropping all of the sexual abuse complaints against him, including mine, even though I was already an international headline by that point in time. And her rationale to the detectives was these women aren't strong enough to stand up to the trauma of a lawsuit. These, these cases are full of holes. And I had Andrea, the police detective and a police chief and they picked up the phone and they called the attorney general and they said, I need you to come and take these cases. 
you know, and they were able, because they spanned multiple jurisdictions, the attorney general was able to come in and he sent his best and Angela picked up those files and she said, I'm going to fight for every one of them. And then she did. But if we hadn't had that every point along the way, and then if we hadn't had multiple judges uh, who allowed all these victims to speak, we wouldn't have gotten the results we got. You know, it wasn't one voice. And I think that's really critical for people to understand. It had to take an incredible community of people who were trained and trauma-informed and committed to doing the right thing when they had no idea what it was going to become. You mentioned earlier it was so key that that the powers that be took this seriously, right? Mm-hmm. And not all of them did, and they had to push and push and push. But, you know, I, I'm, I've had a little bit of a taste of that over the last year with our dear friend that we've been working with um, that the powers that be have not been taking it seriously and virtually nothing has happened, right? Like it's so slow going and, and, and based on the numbers you gave earlier, that's more common, like what you experienced and what, what the survivors that, you know, came forward experienced was way different than what most, again, and it's another reason why, like, there's no, there's no question in my mind why survivors don't come forward, why they don't talk about it, because they're most likely going to be met with what our friend and many others are met with, which is, we'll get to it when we get to it. Um, I don't believe everything you're saying. There's not enough evidence. This, you know, there's a million reasons. uh, And a lot of it's just laziness and ignorance. We're not going to take this as seriously as we should be doing. And I'm so grateful that, and this is laid out again in Athlete A on Netflix, like it's laid out so, like, that was so apparent to me that the the key points were people taking your words seriously. Yeah, it really was. And that's, you know, that is what didn't happen for decades because what we now know is that before I ever walked in Larry's door, at least three different women had reported Larry's abuse in very graphic detail. By the time I reported in 2016, there were dozens of MSU employees uh, who had had warnings. We had reports to the gymnastics coach, the softball coach, the track and field coach, a psychologist who was employed by MSU, reports made to his colleagues. We had a Title IX report that was filed just a couple of years before I came forward. We had a police report that was filed a couple of years before I came forward, just in the MSU police department. And then we also had multiple other police departments that had received allegations. There was a police report filed in 2004. There was an FBI report filed in 2015 that athlete A references that went absolutely nowhere. Then there was the police report filed at MSU around the 2015, uh, 2014 timeframe. And then there was yet another police department that aided in covering up for Larry, even though they never received report, the Indianapolis Police Department, the head of their child sex abuse division. Uh, when the I, when the Indy Star was going to run this article, they reached out to the head of the child sex abuse division and they asked for his help, was, quote, body slamming the sources for the article. And they were referencing the reporters from the Indy Star. And this, this detective who was head of the child sex abuse division sent out a press release and sent a letter to the Indy Star telling them they were barking up the wrong tree. You know, mm. and there are just so many questions associated with that one instance in general. Um, but if you look at just the NASA investigation, you have five different detectives and agencies uh, and units who didn't do the right thing and only one who did. Yeah, you know, I think the, both up on YouTube is uh, the 2014 police interrogation of Larry. And then you have Andrea's police interrogation of Larry and the differences between those two. Yep. It's just, it is a case study in the differences when you believe the survivor and when you're trauma informed and you know how to do a forensic investigation. It's just, it's incredibly stark. It's night, I've watched them both. It's night and day. It's yeah, night it's and day. Night and day difference. But getting a detective trained like Andrea is not the norm. So the FBI failed you all. 
uh, USAG failed you all. This the university failed you all, and many many you know uh, uh, law enforcement uh, officers failed you all along the way. How did you stay? Um, and again, your your case your in your case was one of those that actually got traction and and yeah. re resulted in serious conviction, which is what should have happened. But how did you even even with all of that? How how did you stay focused and stay determined? and not just want to give up. It was the right thing to do. I mean, that That's really it. is, yeah, that really is what it boiled down to. You know, I think, I think it's really critical that we define success properly. So often we are tempted to define success or push to define success by some artificial benchmark, a, a job we achieve, grades we achieve, a professional achievement, uh, maybe even an interpersonal achievement. We establish these artificial benchmarks for success and we define our value and our identity by these artificial benchmarks. Um, yeah, and that could have been a significant hurdle for me. I had to know that my value and my worth and my identity and my definition of success were not dependent on the societal response I received. They weren't dependent on what 12 members of a jury thought. They weren't dependent on how the police detective or prosecutor responded. That wasn't success. Success was doing the best I could with what I had, being faithful with what I had. Um, and that really was the question that I asked myself every morning and every night, have I been faithful with what I've been given? You know, and especially during that time frame, you know, that ranged from everything from parenting young children well, to trying to be a good wife, to, you know, dealing with the press and attorneys at random intervals throughout the day without warning and without notice. Um, but that really is what it boiled down to. You have to be faithful with what you're given. And the results weren't in my control. You know, and I had, I had to know that and not carry that kind of false weight. This is something that I, you know, I have to rem remind myself and I remind those listening and the people that I get to sort of help along the way with let's give a damn is that people that have sort of a lasting impact in the world, they, it doesn't come easy. Mm -hmm. They are not going to be believed. They're going to be unjustly treated by many people. Like in this age, in this society of like instant gratification and like we want things to happen quickly, like they should. In this case, you look and you're like, this should happen quickly. Like there's no reason why this shouldn't happen quickly. That's just not how things happen. Right. We have to sort of take off these rose colored glasses of the way the world should be and the way our justice system should be and yeah. see that like this is, it is gonna be slow. And in, in certain cases, in certain cases when people are trying to change entire systems, you might not live to see the results of your labor, right? Like there's yeah. so many, there's so many damn givers as I call them, like, you know, the, the, the Dr. Kings of the world and so many other people, the James Baldwins and so many people rose apart, like that, that gave so much and did so much to change these systems. They were still not out of the woods, not by a long shot, yeah. but they won't see the results of their labor, but they did genuinely change the trajectory. And um, yeah, so that's really what it comes down to is like believing this is the right thing to do. I'm going to keep pushing even if it, even if the results of my labor like outlive me, right? Got to keep going because it is the right thing to do. Yeah. And I think that definition of success really steers you away from a lot of pitfalls. You know, if you have a definition of success that's based on an artificial benchmark and you don't reach it, it can cause you to become um, really, really adopt an end justifies the means approach. If I can just get here, then I can do this good thing that I really want to do. And that's a recipe for compromise and for just destroying everybody in your wake in your attempt to reach a good goal. You know, how we do what we do matters. 
But if you have defined success as this artificial benchmark, it's really easy to go look if I can just get here. It doesn't matter what I need to do to get there because then I can do this good thing. I can reach this result. That's a really good result. Or it really is a recipe for burnout, becoming so exhausted when you're not seeing the result you think you should see that it feels just pointless to do what's right anymore. But if our definition of success is being faithful with what we're given, I think that's the compass that really steers away from both of those pitfalls. That's really, really helpful. Last Larry, Larry NASA related question, because I want to stop talking about him. But um, is there is there an estimated number of how many girls he abused over the over the decades long career that he had? Is there a number out there or or no? So more than 500 have now identified themselves, Um, but I suspect it is far, far more than that because what we have seen is that he was doing this to multiple girls. I mean, he would, he would abuse girls all day in his practice at MSU, and then he would go and he'd work at the high school. Uh, And so all day long, literally until midnight between the high school and the, and the gym where he was the doctor twist stars, he would be treating athletes from eight o'clock in the morning until midnight. And he abused almost everyone that walked in his door as far as we can tell, multiple girls a day for at least 25 years. You know, the earliest known victim goes back to around 1997 or 1998, uh, and it didn't stop after that. Um, so I, I really genuinely think it's in the thousands and we'll never know. My God, that's horrible. What I'd love for you to do in the next few minutes as we begin to wrap up, I want to talk to you so much, but I want to be respectful of your time as well. You've learned a lot over these last few years because you know, 2015, you were sort of you, like nobody knew who Rachel Den Hollander was, right? Until yeah. you, before you came for, I mean, the people around you did, but on a on a national and global scale, no one knew who you were. And all of a sudden you're thrust into the spotlight. You've done so much work over the last few years, uh, helping survivors stay alive, first of all, because it is such a tragic life to live. It is so hard to live with the weight of being abused and not being heard. So you've done such incredible work there, but you've also um, you have educated yourself and in turn been able to educate others on, because you yourself w- were abused, on what to look for and how to help, how to be most helpful. And so what I'd love for you to do just for a few minutes is help us become more aware of what's going on and how can we just everyday people, because the reality is every single one of us, every single person listening knows either is a survivor mm-hmm or knows a survivor, everybody. We all have these people, many that have spoken up and many, many more that have not for the reasons we've outlined over the last hour. Help us become better at helping in this area. What are the things we should be looking for? How can we be most helpful? What's, what are some, what is, uh, are the things we shouldn't say and things we should say as we hear about more stories or if, or like your mom did when you were a teenager, like, how do we see, what are we looking for? And then how do we approach that person uh, to, to try to get, get something out of them that we think is there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really difficult. I think the first piece really is education. You need to understand what trauma looks like. You need to understand what typical trauma responses are uh, so that you don't miss key evidence or mischaracterize or miscategorize evidence so that you know what kind of behavioral cues to look for and pick up and what kind of societal cues to look for and pick up on. Um, So being educated on trauma, being educated on abuse and abusive dynamics, particularly as relates to institutions and cultures that harbor abuse and abusive dynamics, that kind of threshold knowledge helps you know what to say and what not to say. Um, You know, it helps you understand rape myths 
uh, and known not to ask questions that mirror rape myths, uh, not to ask questions in ways that cast blame. It helps you understand the lies that the survivors are hearing in their own head so that you can be the person who is compassionately speaking truth to them over and over. It helps you understand the level of neurologic and physical damage that happens, particularly in cases of severe trauma, uh, so that you understand the behaviors you're seeing and you know how best to walk alongside that person. So education really is the first layer. Um, but in, what are know, some, not, not to interrupt you, but what are yeah. some names that we should be looking for? Like what, what, what kinds of resources are there authors that we should be reading from Are there lectures out there we should be watching? Cause not everybody's gonna be able to like go to school and like, you know, in right. fact, most people, they, they can't go get educated in this as much as you are and other people that are helping in kind of a bigger way. So what are some books or resources that we should be looking for and going out and reading? Yeah, there's some great stuff out there right now. Um, so in terms of any kind of like in-person education, there's a great program called Darkness to Light. That is what most child advocacy centers use. Um, and they have a, a program geared for children, but they also have training material for adults. And it's usually offered free. And so you can get a group of adults together and you can go through the Darkness to Light program and it's going to talk to you about grooming. It's going to talk to you about warning signs and dynamics and how you respond to disclosures, how you respond to warning signs, what happens when you report. It's going to walk you through all that process. And that's information that it is relevant to anybody in any context. Doesn't matter if it's your next door neighbor or if you manage a children's ministry, you know, at church or if you're a school teacher, that type of information is going to be just critical. So Darkness to Light is a program that I highly recommend. Uh, and they try very hard to make it really accessible. Sometimes it can even be done online. Um, so they really try hard to make that accessible. It's usually free and that I highly recommend that program. Uh, for the church type context, I think Diane Langberg is where it's at, honestly. Uh, her work on uh, she's a Christian psychologist. For those who aren't familiar with her, she's a Christian psychologist and her specialty is trauma and sexual abuse. Uh, and her understanding of trauma and abuse and abusive dynamics, the role of authority, uh, the theology of a proper theology of justice and suffering um, is really beautiful, but incredibly uh, deep and yet really put together in a way that's very accessible. Um, so she's got a couple books uh, that I recommend. She's got one uh, that just came out uh, that's on power and authority and understanding power and how and authority and how that um, really shapes abusive dynamics. I think that's a critical read for anybody who occupies any position of authority, uh, particularly in religious contexts. She has a book called Counseling Survivors of Sexual Abuse, which is for people who are walking alongside survivors of abuse. And then she has a book for survivors called On the Threshold of Hope. Mm. And those types of books are really helpful to read, even if it's a book geared to survivors, because it helps you understand sure. what they need to hear and how they're thinking. Um, so those are some great resources. Um, you know, and then from a, for somebody who's running a ministry or a church, um, you know, you got to have a great child protection policy in place, and you've got to have a policy in place for how you respond when there are warning signs, when there are allegations, you know, do you notify the congregation? When do you file a report? What do you do with the perpetrator? Can you come to church? Can you be here? Can you be here? Those are questions that you need to know the answer to long before you receive any kind of disclosure. Um, and so the organization I recommend for that is Grace, Godly Response to Abuse in a Christian Environment. They're just top of the line when it comes to education. And they really go to the heart of abuse uh, and understanding God's heart for justice and for the abused and the oppressed in a way that's really beautiful. Um, so those are my top recommendations, uh, really just to start out with. And then a book called The Body Keeps the Score. Mm -hmm. And that book really goes through the, neuro the neurologic changes uh, and, and the physical changes that we experience during any kind of trauma. It's not geared only to sexual assault survivors. So it really does apply across a broad range uh, of spectrums, but that helps understand just the incredible level of damage that's done uh, and why survivors have certain responses, uh, why certain therapies are helpful. I mean, it goes all the way through what your T cells do 
after uh, you have experienced severe trauma. It's an incredible, incredible resource. Uh, and it's written in a very compelling way. Um, and it's just, I, I think it's the top book, honestly, for understanding trauma and abuse and behaviors that stem from that. And when you understand those sorts of things, that gives you a much greater knowledge to be able to walk alongside a survivor, even though most of us are not going to become licensed clinical psychologists. Yeah, the body keeps the scores. I mean, anybody that loves people and wants to help people and serve people uh, yep. needs to read the body keeps the score. I mean, even if you're not a survivor of any sort of abuse that that you know of, it, it's information that we need desperately. It's such a Absolutely. such a fantastic book. Okay, so those are great resources. Anything else that we should be looking out for? I interrupted you earlier to ask for resources, but um, you know, you were talking about education. But anything else that we should be looking for? I think we really have to go beyond our actions. You know, we talk a lot and we need to talk a lot about what we do, what kind of legislation needs to change, what kind of you know training do detectives need to have? How do we train our prosecutors? Uh, what kind of child protection policies do we put in place? Those are all really important and we need to discuss those. But we also have to understand that behind our actions are our ideas and our motivations. And that's where we don't like to dig a lot of times because that's where we have our idols and our habits that we want to be able to keep and have it be okay. I think we need to start talking a lot more about the impact of porn on our culture mm. because it is not a big step to go from viewing a woman or another person as a sex object that exists for your gratification to beginning to treat them like one or not being all that disturbed when they are treated like one. If we want to change how we act, we have to change how we think. And the impact of pornography on our generation cannot be overestimated. It's astronomical. It is causing neurologic changes in children as young as eight and nine years old, massive changes to how their hormones, their dopamine responds. It's causing massive changes in their ability to respond healthy in a normal sexual healthy environment. Um, rates of erectile dysfunction medication being prescribed to men under 30 are skyrocketing Wild, because the level of sexual addiction to pornography, which is 80 to 90% of the time, violent pornography has, has so infiltrated and saturated our culture that we don't have a, a map for what healthy sexuality should be anymore. This typically makes women far more submissive to unhealthy and abusive sexual dynamics. And it creates a, a situation where men don't even recognize how unhealthy and abusive their sexual expectations are uh, because they have been steeped in violent sexuality from seven years old. That's the average age of exposure to porn now. We have to start talking about those things. We have to start talking about how we think. And then beyond that, we've got to look at where we have our sphere of influence. You know, everybody has issues that they're more passionate about or more equipped to address. Yeah, so not everybody is going to become someone who speaks and educates on sexual abuse, but all of us have our social media platforms. Mm -hmm. All of us have our communities, physical communities, online communities. All of us have our voice. And there, it, the issue of sexual abuse comes up so constantly in the media. There's always a chance to tell the truth. There's always a chance to stand up against the rape myths. There's always a chance to educate. Uh, and how you speak about abuse and abusive dynamics really is what signals to a survivor whether or not they're going to be safe to speak up. Survivors are always watching how people talk about abuse because they know that's what they would really think of me. They're talking this way about that survivor. If they knew I was like that, that's what they would think of me. And that's how likely they are to understand what I've been through and the dynamics of what I've been through. And so how we communicate about it publicly, that's a lot of what drives the cultural change. It's how we think and it's how we speak, the ideas that we're putting forward. All of that is so, so helpful. I wish we could talk for two more hours on the pornography thing because 
that I believe as well. I mean, it's affected me. I've watched way too much porn in my life, you know, and like it's, it's, you start out by thinking, well, this is just like consensual sex between, you know, a man and a man or a woman and a woman or a man and a woman. And then, but it's so easy because they're, it's all hosted on, you know, the, the recent thing with Nick Kristoff, you know, exposing all these unverified accounts, putting rape, you know, underage rape on, you know, Pornhub where, you know, you might think you're going to look for something and then you get led down this trail and all of a sudden you're watching things that would never happen in real life. Like your, your partner, your spouse is not going to do that. They want that. Yeah. They, and they, and, and yeah, not going to do that. And they don't want that. Like that is not real. That's not how it happens. And then it just, it begins to grow and grow. And all of a sudden you're thinking that's reality now. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't take that long to go from, well, this is an escape to no, this is what I want to be my yeah. reality. And that is why I think we have so many, I mean, again, there's so many trails we could take here, unhealthy relationships and so many people not lasting in relationships and unhappiness in relationships. And then, you know, again, you start out thinking innocently about it and all of a sudden you are down this path where you're thinking, you're, you're correlating, you know, sex with violence and being rough in all these things. And, and then I've always said we're all one, you know, I've never thought myself above any of these, these things that are happening in the world. We're all one bad decision away from becoming, you know, committing a crime, becoming somebody horrible, doing something horrible to someone else. Like, and pornography helps you get there. Oh, absolutely. And nobody thinks they're going to be that person. No, you you don't start out that way. You don't start out thinking I'm going to rape somebody someday. You're thinking, oh, this is such an innocent thing. And we're just literally one bad decision, one wrong place, wrong time away from doing something like that. What prevents those things from happening, I think, is avoiding it and staying away from it and pursuing healthy relationships instead, right? Yep, exactly. Rachel, um, Man, I could do this for a lot longer, but I'm going to let you go. You have been named Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in the World. You've been a Glamour Magazine's Woman of the Year. You've been a Sports Illustrated Inspiration of the Year. You've won so many awards. You've spoken to so many amazing you know, audiences at Harvard and UC Berkeley and Columbia. And now you've spoken here on the Let's Give a Damn podcast sharing your story. I really appreciate your time. I really appreciate your boldness in 2015 to... Uh, do the right thing, which is, I think that's, I know you enough to say that that's how you live your life. That is not just unique in this, in this uh, court, you know, this part of your life, you do the right thing. And I'm grateful uh, for your friendship. I'm grateful for you sharing your story on here and for educating us. This has been super enlightening, super hard. I'm sure people are going to, I already, I already know that people are going to, this is going to be a very hard one for people to listen to, but it's necessary because we can't, we can't avoid uh, thinking about and engaging with and listening to what's really happening out there. It's going to, it's going to hopefully create, uh, listeners that want to pursue learning about this more and they want to get more engaged in their communities and they want to, uh, 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 help people in this way. So I'm really grateful for, uh, your time here today. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having the conversation. It's how change is made. Thanks for joining Rachel and me today. Visit letsgiveadam.fm for resources and links about Rachel and her work and so much more. And while you're there, you can sign up for our email list and you can listen to the other 175 podcast conversations we have out there. Lastly, thank you for listening. 
I truly am blown away and honored that you come back week after week to listen to these conversations. This show, as always, is produced by Chad Michael Snavely and the team at Sound On Sound Off Studios. The music is by our friend Propaganda. You can reach out anytime and for any reason at helloletsgiveadam.com. I love you. Be safe. Keep giving a damn. And bye for now.